I saw this creature turn bright red with excitement. Her eyes swiveled in its socket, locked onto my face, and she came over to meet me. She slid from her lair specifically to come and meet me. And I saw her arms with their white suckers bubbling up from the depths of the tank, reaching toward me. And of course, I asked if it was okay, may I touch her? But my impulse immediately was to plunge my hands and arms into the tank and reach out to her just like she was reaching out to me. And she'd come over to let me touch her and to taste me with her arms and her suckers. And after I'd been stroking her head for a long time, she turned white beneath my touch, and I later discovered that white is the color of a relaxed octopus. Cy Montgomery is a naturalist who firmly believes we should experience the immediacy of living things, to feel connected to them. I envy her fearlessness in connecting with an octopus. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Cy was visiting the New England Aquarium. It was the first time she ever got to touch one, which means it was also the first time one ever touched her. In that instant, she was hooked. Her passion for these cephalopods has never waned. Cy Montgomery went on to write The Soul of an Octopus, a surprising exploration into the wonder of consciousness. That aquarium in Boston became one of her regular haunts. As a volunteer there, she observed her eight-armed friends in their tanks, marveled at them, and even struck up games with them. An especially poignant encounter came for her one day in 2020. I got to spend an hour and a half playing with Rudy. And finally, I mean, normally, because, you know, their, their blood um, is copper-based and not iron-based, they don't have a lot of of stamina. They can do short bursts of incredible things, but normally an octopus is too tired after an hour, certainly an hour and a half to continue playing. What were you playing? What do you play with an octopus? Well, you know, it's it's like I guess a version of patty cake. <laughs> we're we're you know, stroking each other and she's tasting me and she's sucking on me with her suckers and um, you know, I'll, I will feed her some stuff, and I'll I'll pet her, and we're just kind of drowning in the sensation of being together. She should have been tired, but she had no intention of stopping play. We finally, me and my my friend who had come with me, um, we had to get in the car and drive home from Boston before, you know, the rush hour traffic started. But it was a really wonderful, long, sweet play session. And the next day, the aquarium and all of Boston was closed due to COVID. Sai was fortunate. Before the pandemic cut off travel, her passion for these astonishing animals led her down under the sea many times, which is where we're going to take you this hour. People of my generation remember Jacques Cousteau. On television, he took us along on his dives to countless places of mystery and magic, places that few of us ever get to go in the flesh. Not everybody has easy access to the deep. But we can learn about marine life forms vicariously through these intrepid divers who have stories just as compelling as size about octopuses, stories of animals putting out a welcome mat, sometimes seeming almost civilized. I'll never forget talking with National Geographic photographer Brian Scarry about an orca offering him food. In a moment, we'll meet the filmmaker behind the Academy Award-winning documentary My Octopus Teacher, also a marine biologist and diver with the incredibly apt name Helen Scales. She'll tell us about coral reef spas established and operated by Fish for Fish. And as we tag along with these people, we're going to reflect on how non-divers, living miles from the sea, can possibly feel connected to animals that seem fully exotic, marine life in remote locations with existences that are in fact intertwined inextricably with our own. Back now to Sai to hear about her octopus encounters in the wild. 
Apparently, these masters of disguise can elude even seasoned divers. Most of the time, the octopuses were hiding. And day after day after day, first we weren't finding them at all. And then when you'd see them, all you'd see was some suckers under a rock. And I was thinking, like, gee, this is, this is not going to be all that entertaining for me. But then, one of our last days, I had this amazing experience. There were two octopuses who were out and about. And one of them, this is a Pacific Day octopus, also known as the Big Blue octopus, essentially decided to show us around the place and let us follow her. We knew it was a female because you can tell by looking at the third right arm. Let us follow her around. And she even reached out and touched me. And I was astonished because all the other ones I'd met had been so shy. But she was exceptionally bold. And I have heard other divers had similar experiences. Many divers spend their entire diving career without ever seeing an octopus. And why? Because they change color and shape and they can pour their boneless bodies down a tiny hole so you don't see them. But if you encounter a bold octopus, they will sometimes, it seems like, they're intentionally showing you around the place. And I've even heard of octopuses that will take a diver by the hand and lead them. It's the most amazing thing. And what is motivating them to do this? But, But some are shy, just like people, and some are bold. Cy Montgomery spent years studying octopuses, and so it's only natural that she would have seen and loved My Octopus Teacher, that film documentary by Craig Foster. But even with her own diving experience, when she saw that remarkable scene as Craig is swimming closer and closer to a spherical conglomeration of ocean floor detritus, she didn't recognize it as an octopus. It doesn't look like an octopus. It looks like a big ball of of shells, and it's actually holding in its suckers different shells and balls. It's not even just camouflaging. It's physically picked up in its suckers stuff from the seafloor and is holding it out like a shield, like a big round shield all around it. I'd never seen that. And given that I've spent hundreds of hours with octopuses, I did not realize I was looking at an octopus at that moment. If you don't know this scene from the movie, just imagine an octopus as a transformer toy, and you're mostly there. Craig Foster, the diver and filmmaker who learned so much from his octopus teacher, is still diving daily off the tip of Africa, there on the Cape of Storms. I reached out to him recently, and he told me about the octopuses he had seen just that very morning. I was diving in the rain this morning, but it was a soft rain. And when I look at the sea, what I'm looking for is like the calmness, the clarity. So if it's raining, I'm going to get wet anyway. It's kind of like a beautiful day if the sea is calm and I can see a lot of things. At this time of year, we get a lot of the octopus coming into the shallows. And um, I found over 10 octopus in their dens this morning. And it's fascinating to see what they've been hunting in the night. So I can see the remains of their kills, and it's so interesting because you can get a sense of what animals prefer, what foods, and also what is available in their little micro areas. So the octopus dens kind of show me an incredible picture of the secret lives of animals, of very cryptic animals that live in the area, which I wouldn't normally see, but these octopus are so clever that they're going out and catching them, bringing back their dens and eating them, and I can tell from the kills lying around the dens what's going on in the environment. And I also found a very interesting giant whelk laying an egg, uh, egg case this morning, an egg case I'd never seen before, something very, very rare, so I was able to photograph that. So each day, there's, a, there's something, normally something special, and I'm slowly gathering these tiny little bits of these clues and building this incredible picture of the biology and the magic of this underwater sea forest. Extra points if you can spell whelk or even know what one is. I had to Google it, and then I said, oh, it's one of those. But how would I even know, living as I do so far from the sea? 
Well, I'll tell you how. In the home I grew up in, we had one very large, very beautiful pink and white conch shell. Heaven knows why we had it. A conch is a type of whelk. Lots of people who have never been diving, maybe you're one of them, have held and admired conch shells. But to see a live whelk is something I can only imagine. Craig Foster has brought the sea closer to people like me in a new book of sumptuous photos, not just of octopuses, but countless other forms of sea life. The book is titled Underwater Wild, My Octopus Teacher's Extraordinary World. Craig explores far and wide, but the truth is he's most often right in his own backyard. Quite a backyard at that. It's called the Great African Sea Forest. Almost every square millimeter uh, of the ocean here is covered in some kind of life, covered in algae or covered in different animals, bryozoans, I mean, ascidians. Uh, it's hard to find a rock with a spare centimeter that hasn't got life on it. That's the wonderful thing, uh, certainly about the ocean here. I go in every day, I was at in, in at um, 7 a.m. this morning. You know, I've been every, going in every day now for uh, over 10 years and in a lifetime of diving before that. And it just keeps amazing how much life is here and how I keep learning from these animals and from these plants. I've never been in any other environment on Earth that comes close to the great African sea forest. I mean, it's this three-dimensional underwater forest filled with the most extraordinary animals. I mean, if you had to try and write the craziest science fiction you could, you wouldn't come close to the lives of these animals that I encounter on a daily basis. And I just, I'll need far more than my lifetime to begin to understand them. So it's continually fascinating. I'm always learning from these animals. It's it's like being in a underwater wonderland. I mean, there's nothing... The colors are so much more alive and vibrant than on land. Yeah, I haven't been anywhere near close to an environment like this. As you get to see in his documentary, Craig uses minimal gear. He does free diving, so each descent is limited by his need to breathe. Yeah, it's probably you know, at least a couple of minutes, but it, it depends so much on how rough it is, how much I've been using my body. Uh, how relaxed I am, how, if I've been swimming or not. So the classic free diving is you are floating on top of the water for a long time and breathing up and then getting the body quite saturated with oxygen. I don't do that because I need to be down a lot. I need to be near the animals that I see. And so I'm trained to take just a few breaths on the top and go down, a few breaths and go down, spend a lot of time down when I need to. You know, and if there's something very interesting going on, I will push quite hard, otherwise I won't push much at all. And those foot fins that you use seem extraordinarily long. Is that to facilitate quick descent, quick movement? The, the long fins I used for many years, and they're wonderful for you know, deep diving and they're very economical. Uh, I've now gone through a period of n using no fins at all and kind of just even taking, you know, less equipment and blending more in with this environment, coming closer to it. So I'm, I go through these different phases of sometimes using fins. I never use a wetsuit or anything like that. I like to feel the cold and get all the benefits of the cold. But at the moment, I'm not using fins and I'm not using a weight belt. So it's more, you're kind of climbing in this underwater forest and using the kelp gently pulling myself down in the kelp. So it's kind of like climbing in a reverse gravity environment because I'm positively buoyant without the weight belt. My body wants to float to the surface, but I'm holding myself down with the kelp. The less equipment I have, the, the, the closer somehow I feel to this environment. It's just something about the bare feet. You can walk along the, the sea floor holding on the kelp. Uh, it's almost like you're walking in a forest on land, but you're underwater and you can feel all the kelp and the rocks and the, you know, the little textures on your feet. And something about just moving with your arms, you know, sometimes traveling a couple of kilometers uh, in a dive along the coast, looking for interesting things, 
diving through caves, pushing off the bottom. So it's a, it's just, it's a sense of even more freedom in some ways than going with the fins. Talk cuttlefish with me. I've never held one. <laughs> one of my favorite animals. Um, I mean, there are quite a few species of cuttlefish here. Um, I have two favorites. The tuberculate cuttlefish is a small endemic cuttlefish we only find here in Southern Africa. And this, this animal is the absolute grand master of camouflage. I mean, this animal can out-camouflage an octopus. I could show you, Marcus, I could show you right in front of you and say, that's the cuttlefish there, and I could point to it, and I promise you for the first few minutes, you would not be able to see it. It would totally blend into the environment, and you might think it was a shell or a stone. And in fact, this tuberculate cuttlefish mimics three different other animals. They mimic whelks to pretend that they're a tough, hard-shelled animal to avoid predation. They mimic fish when they swim, and they even mimic the movements of hermit crabs when they're moving. They will drag their kind of mock shell and pretend they're a hard-shelled animal and, and a hermit crab living in a shell um, to fool predators when they could actually jet away quite, quite fast and then become a food item. So they can camouflage color, even though they're actually color blind, they can, they've hacked color. They use diffraction to figure out what color is. And, and they mimic it beautifully, and they change their body shape into these other animals. I mean, it's mind-blowing. I've even got a picture of one that mimicked the tiny little two-millimeter polychaete worms on the back of another shell that it was pretending to mimic. The level of camouflage mastery is fantastic. And they have to do this because they're small, they don't get much more than 10 centimeters, they're very vulnerable but they thrive because of this genius. Have you ever envied a cephalopod for this intelligence that almost permeates the body clear down to the extremities? I, ha I, I do, I wouldn't say the words envy. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun question. I, I kind of envy the wildness of these creatures. They're fully wild. They, they're born wild and we are also born wild, but we don't get to live a wild existence, but they get to live a fully wild existence every second of their lives. Whereas our lives, in my mind, are largely tame with sort of little moments of wildness. So that's, I guess, if there's anything to, to envy, it's that, that pure wild existence in a very dramatic environment. I think is, is something quite special. I wonder if I'm hearing in your response there the idea that this wildness is kind of a denial of past and future and, and a thorough inhabitation of the present. Yeah, that's an interesting question, very interesting question. You know, you often think, and I've thought about this a lot, Marcus, like is an octopus or a cuttlefish or any of these other animals fully present? Like you often think, okay, they're just fully present and we kind of know what that state is like, that kind of flow state, and it's, it's very invigorating. But if you actually look closely, um, you know, these animals can remember a lot of things that have gone on in the past, and then you can see them reacting to that. If they have some predator coming near the den, you can see them kind of becoming slightly paranoid and building big walls and so on. And they also plan, uh, they kind of plan things for the future and they strategize how they're going to hunt, where they're going to go to hunt. So they're not uh, always in the present. You think they might be, but they're actually not. But I think your point is good in that I think a much larger percentage of their existence is fully present compared to us. I mean, we kind of, I think, quite a neurotic species, especially with what we have to deal with and the... Uh, you know, we've designed to be in groups of uh, maybe 30 people and we've some people live in groups of three, uh, you know, 30 million people in a city. So that that uh, is almost guaranteed to make you a bit neurotic. We've been thrown out, I think, a lot of our, our fully present existence, but they are not always uh, living in the present. They have incredible memories. 
And as, as I say, they plan for the future. They have maps of the underwater sea environment in their head. They can navigate very well. So they, there's a lot of, lot of brain power there, but it's quite different to ours. My phone call with Craig was beset by intermittent downpours of rain. Classic weather for the southern tip of Africa where he lives. But it didn't deter me from probing for more first-hand descriptions of the complex behavior of some of his favorite sea creatures. I want you to hear what Craig, my marine ecosystem teacher, told me about mollusks that cultivate underwater gardens. Craig Foster is the documentarian behind the Oscar-winning film, My Octopus Teacher. There are a lot of us who wouldn't be able to observe a mollusk and say, oh, I see how it's behaving. I mean, that, that we, we tend to think of behavior as, as something that doesn't happen on that level, but you say it does. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these, you know, <laughs> these, these mollusks are have incredibly complex lives. The, for instance, I mean, some of the limpets I saw this morning. So a limpet is a, a mollusk with a, a conical, mostly conical shell with a big um, muscular foot, uh, and it sticks to the rock like glue. In fact, it has got a type of uh, glue that it sticks to the rock, and it's protected by the shell, and they live mostly in the intertidal zone in this incredibly volatile area, which is sometimes 40 degrees in the day when the tide recedes and then goes drops to 8 degrees when the water comes in. They have their own gardens. They're like agriculturalists. They tend those gardens. They keep other animals off those gardens. They crop those gardens in a certain way that they will grow fastest, and they even fertilize the gardens with their feces. So this is a tremendously, some of these animals are so sophisticated and they grow specific species in their gardens. We don't know, it's a mystery of how they do that. So we know something about them, but there's still most of the stuff we, we know very little about. And that's what's so exciting. But the complexity of these animals' lives, I can't tell you, the smallest little what you might think is an insignificant sea snail or limpet, has an incredibly sophisticated existence. I know that ants tend tiny herds of aphids. I'm a gardener. And I've read about beetles that cultivate fungus. But these are acts of cultivation on land, where somebody like me might actually see them. I've never been close to limpets managing their crops. Nor have I ever been a client in an underwater spa. Never been a client in an above-water spa, for that matter. Helen Scales is a biologist diver who, just like Craig Foster, gets to see some extraordinary marine animal behavior. In just a moment, we're going to have her tell us about some astonishing interspecies social behavior. Helen Scales is author of Eye of the Shoal, A Fish Watcher's Guide to Life, the Ocean, and Everything, and The Brilliant Abyss. Before we get into her description, you need to know that wrasses are fish. Ras is actually a very old word from Cornish. It means old hag. And the cleaner wrasse is a type of wrasse that welcomes other fish to its spa for cleaning services and makes those fish happier, healthier, probably more publicly presentable, too. These are wonderful small creatures. They don't look anything particularly, well, exciting. If you just were to take one on its own, it's a little uh, finger-length fish, sort of cigar-shaped. Some of them are white and blue, and a black stripe down the middle. But if you spend time with them, you realize that they're up to, they're up to something pretty extraordinary. Um, these are little fish that you'll see on coral reefs um, in various places around the world. And they take on a very important role on the reef, which is to basically clean up all the other fish. They're like the dentists and the hygienists, if you like, of the coral reef. Um, and we know this because if you take them away, then those other fish soon enough get uh, pretty unhealthy. So what these cleaner rats are doing is they are they are simply cleaning those fish. They are pulling off um, bits of old skin. They're eating parasites. They are basically sort of doing that kind of all over body work that uh, other fish, you know, can't reach around the back. They can't wash themselves like a cat. Um, but the reason I think this is particularly interesting, because that in itself is pretty cool. It's like an ecological role they do. You can spy these fish 
fish on a reef um, amongst a, a mixed assembly of other big fish, often big predatory fish will hang out, but they're suddenly very peaceful and they're, they're not looking to to, uh, to eat these wrasse. They just want to be cleaned. And that's they know that pretty well. And that's why they go to these particular places, these cleaning stations. But in order for the cleaners to be um, successful at their jobs, um, they have to be pretty smart. Um, in part because they know that some of these fish could all too well eat them if they weren't uh, doing their job properly, if they weren't diligent about uh, picking off just parasites and not uh, taking any more than they need to. And so what these these little fish do, even though they're very small, they have pretty, pretty small brains in comparison to, uh, you know, to us mammals, we've got these huge brains and these fish have, have got pretty small ones in comparison. And yet they are able to develop pretty high levels of intelligence. They can remember things for a long time and they know how to act. They have these complex um, repertoire of behaviors, which they will, they will perform depending on who they're cleaning. They will have hundreds of fish come to their individual cleaning stations. Um, uh, where one or two fish will will work on the others during the day. And those rats will remember every individual. They know what species they are. They know if they've been cleaned lately. Somehow they can tell if they're hungry. So um, the hungrier that fish is and the more of a dangerous predator it is, the better a cleaning service the fish will provide, the rats <laughs> will provide. It will be very, very good at its job. Whereas on the other hand, if it's um, a herbivore, a harmless seagrass munching surgeon fish or a rabbit fish, for example, then the little rat knows it can get away with cheating because what it would really like is actually a, bu- a bite of, uh, of flesh or a bite of the slime from the outside of a fish. Sounds pretty gross, but actually it's a, an important molecule in the slime on the outside of a fish is a sunscreen. They can't make it themselves, but they get it in their diet. And so uh, a bite of slimy uh, sunscreen from another fish is, is really good. But uh, the ras know to only do that when there's little chance of them getting eaten in, in return. And when they do, and this is the really cool part, I think, is they know they're pushing their luck. They realize that if they take that bite, the other fish is not going to be happy. And you can see it happening. The fish flinches and they're, they're pretty disgruntled at this, this scratching bite they've just had. So the ras apologizes. Uh, and all it has to do is it rubs over that spot with its body and its fins. And it basically gives the, you know, the fish, the other fish, the, the rabbit fish that's been bitten, it gives it a, a massage. And studies have shown actually that this really does relax the fish that are visiting these sites. They, they, they often maybe just go there to get a massage as well as to get clean. They find that hormones, stress hormone levels drop in their blood, their heartbeats uh, settle down, and they genuinely are enjoying themselves. Which is extraordinary, and it, it means they can kind of forgive the cheating rats for for one little bite, and they'll stay, and they'll come back the next time. So I think this whole thing shows us that there's so much more going on in the fish's life than than we might imagine. These animals have really complex lives. They remember things. They they interact with each other between species. Um, they have a kind of language, you know, a sort of a give and take between them, and um, you know these, and all of that shows us that it that you don't have to have a big brain in order to have a complex life. We, we've kind of, we've been under this assumption for a long time. Scientists have had this old idea that to be intelligent, you have to be a, a, a warm-blooded mammal walking around here on earth, uh, on land. Um, but that's not just not true. And we've got these very different ways of being uh, smart animals, solving issues, solving problems of survival. And I think the cleaner ass just show us in a really extraordinary way what sort of things the fish can get up to. It's clear to me that Craig Foster concurs that even tiny creatures are grossly underrated for intelligence, and not just for that, also for their sociality, maybe even for their emotional intelligence. But maybe above all else, we've underestimated the vital roles that these creatures have, not just in their particular ecosystems, but for the planet as a whole. Craig took pains to underscore our human dependence on all these remote life forms. He shared his take on this as we were chatting along about his affection for sea otters. Those are animals he's spent enough time with for yet another full-length documentary. Possible title, My Sea Otter Teacher. You know, it's very easy to identify with a big mammal like an otter. I mean, it's it's the size of a medium-sized dog. And it's, you know, it's very easy to identify and kind of fall in love with an animal like that pretty quickly, actually. And it, I see them almost like they like my kin, my, my wild kin, and they teach and they inspire at a very deep level. But even smaller animals 
like limpets or sea snails, once you observe them very closely, you realize that these animals are, each, even these little snails have their own little personalities and they have a tremendously uh, often difficult time to get to adulthood and they've strived and they're strong and they're highly intelligent and they're very good at what they do. So you have a, a strong bond and a sense that each one of these animals' lives are so incredibly precious and vital, not, not only to themselves and the ecosystem, but also to us as human beings, because we often forget that the, the biodiversity, literally the, the, the sheer number of species that are interacting, is literally the immune system of our planet. This is the thing that's keeping you and I and everyone else breathing and eating and in a, in a reasonable temperature zone from second to second. And these creatures and these plants have done this since the beginning of time. Every little animal and its difference is the critical thing, the ingredient that is the magic that's keeping us alive. When you realize that, you can appreciate them and you want to nurture and allow them to regenerate. We've got this incredible planet with its massive biological intelligence and we so desperately need to respect her and respect this giant mother nature because we are alive and well and conscious only because of the grace of this extraordinary system clearly a theme that resonates with you and with so many others and with anybody who's seen my octopus teacher and has liked it is the idea that we have erected some kind of a false division between us and animals i would throw in maybe plants as well is there a validation or a justification that you could offer me today that would explain why this is a legitimate pursuit to not be detached in our observations of nature? Wonderful question, thank you. Um, yes, the greatest threat in a way to our planet and to our species is what I call the cooling of the human heart towards nature, this disconnection that you refer to. Because when you disconnect from the wild, from the great mother, it's easy to desecrate, but if you open your heart and you connect to these wild animals and to these plants and the trees and the, even the air we breathe, uh, which is so full of life, it's very hard to then want to desecrate her. It's, it's much easier to change one's lifestyle and try and do things that allow nature to regenerate. It's the story, it's the emotion, it's the connection to the wild in our minds that creates change, that creates space for animals and plants to regenerate and regrow and in turn then look after us. So it's, it's absolutely critical that we reconnect with our wild origins in that way. We don't go, we don't want to go back to being hunter-gatherers, that's impossible. But we certainly can draw on our indigenous past, on our deep ancestors who were phenomenally connected to nature. The reciprocity they had with nature, you can see it in all the old records, is mind-blowing. We need to take a feather out of our ancestors' caps and we need to have a change of heart because it's going to be, you know, good for everything and everyone. Cy Montgomery bubbles over about getting to befriend an octopus. Craig Foster tells us about his strong bond with what he calls my wild kin. And he speaks of our deep ancestors living in reciprocity with nature. For her part, Helen Scales invites us to reflect on the complexity of animals like cleaner wrasses, animals that demonstrate an intelligence more like our own than many of us would suppose. Think this all through with me for a moment in the spirit of constant wonder. What if our kinship with things under the sea is no fantasy? 
And what if this kinship isn't something that dawned on humans just yesterday? It's not something that began with Charles Darwin either. And I don't know if Pythagoras qualifies as a deep ancestor, but he thought that humans and non-humans are of one spirit pervading the universe, and that makes us one with the animals. I found a fascinating little prayer by 4th century Christian Saint Basil the Great. He wrote that the animals are our brothers, sharing a common home with us, and that animals live not just for us but for themselves. And in his words, they love the sweetness of life. So now I have to ask, is a tiny limpet really my kin? Or can a cuttlefish love the sweetness of life? I was really struck by Craig's observation that it may be easier to identify with, oh, a mammal like a sea otter than with a smaller life forms. Identifying with a whelk, I think that might be easier for him, actually, than a non-diver like me. I may never get a chance to dive down and see with my own eyes a living coral reef or an octopus or any of that stuff. But people like Sai and Craig and Helen, they seem insistent on saying that I am linked in some very significant way to sea creatures. They can't stop themselves from talking up the ocean's living inhabitants. I think because it's just who they are. They mirror the animals in their love for the sweetness of life. But they also talk up sea life to make it very clear that anytime I perceive that I live at a big remove between myself and those life forms, that is an illusion. As vast as the oceans are, as foreign or as remote as something like a kelp forest may seem to me, turns out that marine life and my life are mutually dependent. Here's Cy Montgomery. People do appreciate the vastness of the sea, but I don't think they realize how much damage we as a species, as well as we as individuals, can do to something as vast as the sea. For example, if at your child's birthday party, someone releases a helium balloon. That can choke a whale. It can choke a sea turtle. It can choke almost any animal that eats it. And our plastic is going to outweigh all the biomass of the fish in the sea by 2050. And that our actions have so changed our glorious world. And the sea is actually warming faster than the land. We have so much power over the sea at this point. And the other thing to remember is that the sea is alive with individuals who love their lives just as much as we love ours. There it is again. It's the idea that St. Basil said 1,700 years ago, animals loving the sweetness of life. Cy Montgomery puts it only slightly differently. She says, they love their lives just as much as we love ours. However you choose to say it, it's a big assertion, but it's one that I can't easily discount, especially not if I'm going to be somebody who likes to think about the wonder of all living things. Just moments ago, I was making the case that our species, apparently for eons, has been reflecting on our relationship to the animals. It's not just that they and we are having parallel experiences, enjoying our respective climes and lives here on Earth, but if there's anything going on here about kinship, that implies, at a minimum, connection. But beyond that, it also implies something about care. We spoke with Sai about this and asked her for any recent hopeful stories or evidence from her own experience of humans doing right by their fellow creatures. One of the greatest uh, pieces of evidence is friends like my little friend, Heidi Bell. I met her when she was nine. Um, I gave a talk at her school about octopus. And she came up to me afterwards and said, I want to help. What can I do? And there wasn't a, a specific charity that she could donate to or work for for octopus, but I said, you know, there's lots of other animals in the sea that you can help. And so she, at nine, decided to form a charity. And she has raised over $3,000 for the New England Aquarium. First, that money went to the sea turtle hospital, helping sea turtles who had swallowed plastic or gotten cold stunned due to, in part, climate change. 
And that's one kid who was, you know, nine years old. And I think that young people these days, they're not just the leaders of tomorrow. They're the leaders of today. And I think they have tremendous power, and I have to feel like they can turn this around. With similar optimism, Helen Scales also told me about some conservation work that hopeful people are doing, some really creative people, as you'll see. Not very long ago, an Italian fisherman had just had it with fishing techniques that were damaging his coastal area. He was a guy... A guy who was getting utterly frustrated by the illegal trawling that was happening in the area where he was trying to continue his fairly low-level sustainable fishing on areas, of, for example, of seagrasses. What he did was he worked with some local artists to have these large blocks of marble sculpted into beautiful sculptures of human faces and so on. And, and then he placed these in these seagrasses to physically stop these trawling boats from coming in because it would tear up their nets. So he was combining this idea of, of art in the ocean with protection and uh, and with looking after what's there. And, and that, I think, I mean, it captured my imagination and a lot of people were really responded um, very positively to this idea of finding creative ways to help protect the ocean. And I think it's that partly it is, it's that bringing the human world quite obviously into the ocean, but not in a damaging way, but in a, in a creative and really beautiful way. And as it happens, this fellow in Italy is not the only person using statues to try to help the ailing seas. Helen is keen on the work of Jason DeCarries Taylor. He creates then sinks sculptures in places where sea life is struggling. Coral grows on his statues and, of course, in a world where there are dead, bleached coral reefs. This is meant to help generate new reefs. But there's something more that his statues accomplish. They become a tourist draw. Divers want to see them, visit them. And if you were there, here's what you might see in one of these underwater museums. He does human whole bodies posing in various ways. A lot of these people he puts in the ocean are actually modeled often on local uh, populations. So he goes to certain countries. He works with local communities that are very closely connected to the ocean, to fishing communities often. And he will make casts of those individual people and and cast them uh, in these very carefully selected, I think, marine cements, which are going to be low impact in terms of putting them in the ocean and and that sea life will come and settle quite happily on those structures. But he, so he He's taking those individual humans, those individual characters, and placing them in the seabed, often in poses of protection. Of um, you know, there's a very powerful image, one of them, which is a, a ring of of humans standing hand in hand in, in a circle on the seabed, um, and they're there to you know to protect and to oversee this place of theirs. Um, he also makes giant people. There's another one, which is a huge version of an individual child, I think, kind of holding up the surface of the sea in a kind of, uh, you know, he plays with that that scale a lot. Um, also faces too, a new installation in, in, in the Mediterranean is these giant, uh, giant faces, which he puts down there in the seagrass meadows, these incredible ancient Posidonia meadows of seagrass that have been there for thousands of years. Um, and again, kind of playing with the scale and the, and the, the shape of, of humans. But often it is, it's recognizable individuals and it's people who he's connecting through to um, those who, who live in the area, who, who work there, who rely on those resources and who are often the, the frontline protectors of these, these endangered spaces. And this is called a, a museum or the underwater museum the, the, is one way to refer to this. It's actually meant to have people come visit. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he has these various museums and, and installations around the world now. Um, and a big part of it, yeah, as well as sending these messages about connecting us to the ocean and taking action, a big part of it is to draw people away from very uh, perhaps overpopulated parts of the ocean where divers and visitors are going and potentially do threaten some of the, the more natural, if you like, uh, ecosystems. Um, so there's only so many divers you really want to have on a coral reef before things start potentially to get a little bit trampled on. Um, so um, this idea of kind of increasing the capacity of the ocean to take people in without causing damage to the really you know fragile natural parts of it is is also a part of what he's doing and, and quite successfully he's also you know generating new sources of income for local people by yeah creating a museum which you know you pay a small entrance fee to go see it and that money goes back into the local communities to help them support what they need to do to you know fish sustainably and and so on so uh, so the whole thing is kind of generating interest and income as well 
And then there's this young man, Luke Harris, a high schooler in New York City. Luke was working as a counselor at a summer camp and had a little downtime and read The Brilliant Abyss, one of the books by Helen Scales. It really got him going. After reading Dr. Scales' book, I I emailed her and asked if I could help bring out her message to kids. And she asked, well, what are you really thinking here? And I said, "Uh, I think a competition where kids have to, on their own, find something in the deep that interests them and come up with a creative solution to a problem on land using that. Leave it to a counselor at a summer camp to cook up an activity like this for kids. The kids learn about an unusual deep sea animal with unique features, and those features become their inspiration for some sort of application on dry land, some new engineering design. I'm pretty sure this is what they call biomimicry. As an example of how this could go, Luke points to an animal called the scalyfoot snail. The scaly foot snail, it's like a snail where basically the whole lower half of its body is covered in a shell of little scales, almost like a chainmail vest. I found this through Dr. Scales' book, and I was reading about it, and, I, and it was sort of like, well, why do they have them, you know? Are they for defense, and they sort of pick them up to protect against predators? Uh, or is it more of like a form of uh, like mating, or is it like just a like peacock feathers? Uh, and the answer, as it turns out, is so scaly foot snails live on hydrothermal vents. And as they absorb this sort of goop, I guess, primordial soup that comes out of them, it has a lot of metals in it. And it sort of flows to their body and out these ducts on the side of their body. And the metal accumulates and gives them these awesome looking scales. And I just think that it's one of those things which is just like, you never would have thought. But as it turns out, there's just a lot of stuff which is just sort of weirdly coincidental, but awesome at the same time. So if I was taking the scaly foot snail, for instance, I would probably take its namesake, the scales, and think about what is a problem on land that I can solve using that aspect of the creature. So I might say, well, I noticed that this sort of this buildup of deposit on the edge of the snail from them eating the soup or consuming the soup. So maybe I can relate that to the way that sewage comes out of pipes or drainage comes out of drainage pipes and think about interesting ways where I can use that to maybe reinforce walls or I can, you know, clear that out more effectively. Luke has a firm handle on his teaching methodology, I would say. It's grounded in kids having fun in a contest where they're not just absorbing facts but actively inventing something. He really wants them to get excited excited to, A, explore the deep on their own. It's not like a teacher or parent is forcing them to read a book. It's, wow, this looks really cool. I should look into this. And they're taking that and really learning more about it and really making it their own by creating an interesting solution to a problem with it. In the age of the internet, odds just really aren't bad that a teenager like Luke might be able to engage a whole lot of people. And he set his project up with a website, inspiredbythedeep.com. So Helen Scales writes her book, Luke Harris reads it. He's very receptive to her message that we often don't see the sea for what it really means for all of us, but we could if we just looked harder. Helen is determined to bring that message home, to open more eyes. What I've done is to, you know, just briefly hold up that that blue blanket of ocean that gets in the way of everything that we can see down there and, and, and show people what's beneath. People on land like me rely on marine biologists, like her, to do just that. But even for her, there are limits to what she will ever see in person. I'm unlikely to ever see the very deepest parts of the ocean, even if I was one day lucky enough to get an invitation into a submersible, which I would take, by the way, if anyone does offer. Um, (laughs) But that will only be one tiny place for a couple of hours and, and, you know, one tiny part of this huge realm. So for me, I'm, I'm just the same. I am not going to see the vast portion of this living biosphere of ours, because that is the deep ocean, and very few people ever are going to get to see that. So in the same way, it occupies perhaps the same part in our imaginations as outer space and what's going on beyond our planet. We aren't going to get to see it. We aren't going to get to go there. doesn't mean we can't be fascinated and care and want to know more about that space. So I think the more creative ways we can have of showing people that, you know, you don't actually have to go to these places and you probably won't be able to go to most of these places. And yet still it's, you know, it's so important to our planet, to the health of our planet, to have all of this ocean with us. And to know about that just opens up whole new windows into understanding all of that. We do our best on constant wonder to open those new windows of understanding. 
Thanks to everyone we heard from today. Prolific writer Cy Montgomery, author of The Soul of an Octopus. Filmmaker Craig Foster, who also has a book out, Underwater Wild. Helen Scales, author of The Brilliant Abyss. Luke Harris, creator of that contest, inspired by thedeep.com. I'm Marcus Smith. We're going to leave you now with a fun question, which we also put to a couple of our guests. If you could be any sea creature, what would it be? I would have to be a fish, uh, obviously, because I really want to know what it feels like to actually breathe uh, water and to to fully occupy the ocean. So a fish, it must be. Um, But how about I cheat slightly and I choose flying fish so I can also figure out how it feels to fly or at least to glide good distances. Flying fish don't actually flap their wings or their fins um, and fly, but they leap into the air and can go hundreds of meters across the surface of the sea, airborne, and then plunge back down again. They also swim pretty fast. I think I would enjoy that feeling of speed to have evolved for being as streamlined and as comfortable and powerful in the water as possible. So, um, and with those enormous great big pectoral fins, which do look kind of like bird's wings, I think it would be interesting to experience life both just above and beneath the waves as well. So I think for me, yeah, it would have to be a flying fish. Oh, gosh, I would love to be an octopus. I would love to be an octopus because it's so different from being a human. It's almost, you know, like like an alien. To be able to be that one with the sea, to be able to taste with your skin, to be able to change color, to actually become invisible and part of the sea, that would just be a wonderful experience. I think that's what I would pick, even though they don't live very long. I think that once their days are over, if they're able to, to, to make it to the end of their the long life would be three to five years for a giant Pacific octopus. Most of them get eaten. But what, what an eventful experience it would be to be alive as an octopus and live that full life. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. Thank you.